Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Special thanks to top-tier patrons Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiten for supporting the show. If you'd like to support us from as little as £1 a month, go over to Patreon and look for Demystified Podcast. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Cairo, 1923, the Continental Savoy Hotel. Lord Carnarvon is dead. He'd been sick for a few weeks, but suddenly one of the most important figures in Egyptology has been struck down. Not even has any kind of autopsy been begun before those near him start to speculate as to the cause. Natural, one would assume, but there are those who start to whisper that it was indeed very unnatural, very supernatural. To these people, the ancient writings made it clear. A desecration of a pharaoh's tomb would bring with it unlimited punishment, a vengeance that would follow over lands and across the seas. For them, Lord Carnarvon was simply the first victim of a powerful force, unstoppable and implacable. But was he? One year earlier, 1922, the Valley of the Kings. An archaeological dig is being undertaken in an area absolutely full of them. The Valley of the Kings, located near the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes, is, as the name suggests, a place where many of the kings of antiquity were buried. You see, Egypt goes back a long way. A very long way. Pharaoh Djoser began the Old Kingdom over four and a half thousand years ago, and Nama united Upper and Lower Egypt 500 years before that. As one of the oldest continuous civilizations in ancient history, we think of our own histories as being long-lived, but try and compare it in your head. What will our civilization be like a thousand years from now? What about 2,000? What about 3,000? But the dig here is looking for a very lost king, from a far later time period. In 1907, the name of a king had been identified. Since the discovery of the Rosetta Stone around a century earlier, the lineages and histories of previously unknown ancient Egyptian records were being cracked. That name was one that almost nobody doesn't know. Tutankhamun. An American, Theodore Davis, was the first to uncover the long-lost king, but concluded that he must have found his burial site sometime already. In 1912, Davis had written, I fear the Valley of the Kings is now exhausted. But there were those who believed there were more tombs, far more if the records were right. Each king must have had some kind of burial, but finding a tomb was hard, especially one with intact artefacts. They were designed to be well hidden, and once one was broken into, the thieves would usually leave almost nothing behind. In 1914, George Herbert, the Lord Carnarvon, had taken over Davis's post of the commission to conduct digs in the Valley of the Kings, and he had a hunch there might be more veins to uncover. Even that didn't really work. Despite a three-year hiatus for the First World War, the digs uncovered very little. The main man behind the excavations was Howard Carter. He'd been hired by Carnarvon back in 1907 to help conduct digs. Carter was already a well-known name in archaeology, He'd started work at 17 and was renowned for his use of modern methods and detailed categorization of artifacts. But in 1922, Carnarvon was feeling spent. It was, after all, coming mostly out of his own pocket, so he decided he'd fund one more year of digging and then give up the commission. 
So there stands Howard Carter, at his dig site, wondering what to do. He looks over to a line of old huts. There is a possible site there. Work was begun a while back, but abandoned. Maybe retreading that ground could uncover something new? So the crew get to work. They cleared away the huts and started digging into the debris below. But digging in the Egyptian sun is hot work, so the crew had a water boy, Hussein Abdul Rasul. Young Hussein is carrying water to the workers when he suddenly trips on a rock. Cursing his luck, he goes to pick it up and discovers something. The rock isn't just a lump of stone, it's the corner of a roof. This is when Carter realizes that there might be something to this after all, so the work resumes in earnest, frenzied digging to try and complete it before the season ends. Eventually, the door is found with its cartouches, oval-shaped tablets that bear a royal name. Carter telegrams Carnarvon, who arrives in November with his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert. The excavations at first look scarce. The door was broken into and resealed in antiquity. Signs of a tomb robber's tunnel can be found, indicating that maybe they're too late. But then a second door is discovered, one that looked a little more intact. Carter begins to chisel through until a small hole appears. I'll let him explain what happened next. Quote, At first I could see nothing. The hot air escaping from the chamber caused the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. Carnarvon asked, Can you see anything? I responded, Yes. Wonderful things. On the 29th of November 1922, Tutankhamun's tomb was opened. What followed were press conferences and the categorization of the myriad artifacts. There were a lot of artifacts, over 5,000. Statues, other mummies, gold, carved decorations, a shrine within the tomb itself, you name it. But this happy spell didn't last forever. It didn't even last long, because on the 5th of April 1923, Lord Carnarvon died. He wasn't old, 56 to be exact. His death had been from blood poisoning that turned to pneumonia, caused by cutting a mosquito bite whilst shaving and the wound went bad. But not everybody saw it that way. The tabloids began to talk, as did some of the locals. You see, when the news of the discovery of the tomb was first being broken, a messenger was sent to Carter's house and spotted something unusual, a cobra eating one of Carter's canaries inside the birdcage. The cobra was most commonly found on pharaonic headdresses, a symbol of their power to strike their enemies. Two weeks before Carnarvon died, a letter was published in the New York World that asserted that any ancient tomb disturbed would see dire consequences befall its desecrators. Arthur Conan Doyle fueled the flames of the hysteria, and it so gripped the notoriously superstitious Benito Mussolini that he had his Egyptian artifacts removed from his house. Sir Bruce Ingram, a publisher friend of Carter's, was given a mummified hand with a scarab bearing an inscription, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving that gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. Moore died. George J. Gould visited the tomb and died in May of 1923. A few years later, two more died, one of a mysterious poisoning, another supposedly smothered to death. But the press had their hook sunk into the story, and now, in spite of any evidence to the contrary, the reason behind these strange deaths is well known throughout pop culture. It's been in movies, books, TV shows, comics, tabletop games, and the stories we tell around a campfire. 
It's even been immortalized as part of the classic movie monster set alongside vampires and werewolves. So today on Demystified, we look at the fact and the fiction behind the tomb of Tutankhamun and the mummy's curse. Today on Demystified, we look at Tutankhamun and the concept of the Mummy's Curse. Now, the Mummy's Curse trope doesn't necessarily apply only to Tutankhamun or even to ancient Egypt, but that's where it's most commonly found. And it does go back to ancient Egypt. From my reading, it seems that the practice of inscribing a curse in general was common enough, but not universal. It was more a security theatre measure than anything. For instance, an inscription on the wall of a place meant to deter those who had already either found it or broken into it. Their inclusion on tombs specifically was far less common, mostly because even the idea of a royal tomb being desecrated was so taboo it wasn't recorded. The Old Kingdom had more tomb curses, those in the New Kingdom were far more severe in tone. But we're going to need to take a massive step back and look at Tutankhamun himself, and to talk about him, and why and how his tomb is so special, we need to talk about his father, one of the most controversial pharaohs of all time, Akhenaten. Now, Akhenaten's consort Nefertiti was fascinating in her own right, and to be honest, the whole of the 18th and 19th dynasties of the New Kingdom are a veritable who's-who of famous pharaohs, but we can't get too far sidetracked. So Akhenaten inherits his kingdom at his prime, and leaves it in a state of decline. How does that happen? Well, he does two big things in his reign that cemented him as arguably the most hated pharaoh of all time, despite the fact that, by and large, he was an okay-ish ruler, to begin with at least, The first thing he does is he changes Egypt's religion. For thousands of years before and after Akhenaten, Egyptian religion comprised the worship of the pantheon that we all know and love. Osiris, Anubis, Horus, Isis, Amun, Tot, Ra, Sobek, Bastet, Sekhmet, the list goes ever onward. He took all of them and dumped them, replacing them with a state-mandated monotheistic religion that worshipped Aten, a stylized form of the sun disk with many rays, each ray having a hand at the end of it. Basically, the sun disk personified a god of gods figure, which was at first worshipped alongside other gods, and then replaced them all together. He was pretty massively obsessed with this new god Aten, and this was pretty massively unpopular, and the heavily entrenched priestly class were not exactly on board with this. Aten wasn't totally new, but if it hadn't become the object of Akhenaten's obsession, it might have gone into history unremembered. The second thing he does is he changes Egypt's art style. Now, you might be wondering, why is that bad? And if you look at Akhenaten's art style of choice, it was actually pretty good and quite revolutionary for the time. Much more naturalistic, more fluid, more versatile in forms of subject matter. Well, because this new art was, to the ancient Egyptians, literally heretical. How you're depicted in life affects how you appear in the afterlife, which is eternal, which is why one of the greatest offences you could do to someone was deface their image after they were dead, thus forever warping their eternal body. It's why Egyptian art, the sideways bodies, the specific poses, the pseudo-profile, is the way that it is, to ensure a whole and complete body in the afterlife. Akhenaten was, to the minds of the most pious, damning those he ought to depicted in his new style to an eternity as a monster, intended as a compliment. Brand new open-air temples were constructed and Akhetaten, also called Amarna, was made as the new capital to distance the pharaoh from the priestly bureaucracy. 
This was all very expensive and undid a lot of the economic progress of Akhenaten's forebears. Furthermore, the temple bureaucracy was also in charge of most of the actual running of the empire, so Akhenaten's religious reforms resulted in a potentially unintended isolationist period. So when Akhenaten died, he was replaced by Smenkara, a relative of unknown gender, and then after a year, probably, Nefertiti took over. Not much is known about those who came after Akhenaten because eventually, when the 19th dynasty took over, they sought to wipe out his entire lineage, mostly due to this heresy. But we actually do know a decent amount about Tutankhamun, possibly because one of the first things that happened when he took the throne at just eight years old, probably under the advice of his vizier and uncle Ai, who would succeed him, was to totally undo the changes his father had made. This did endear him at the time, but, as before, later pharaohs would attempt to totally erase Akhenaten from history. So Akhenaten is forever remembered as the enemy, or that criminal, and his line is expunged. By the way, there was also a name change from Tutankarten, catch the Arten in there, to Tutankarmun, Armun being an older and far more established deity. But here's what we know about Tutankarmun, and I promise that last bit will be relevant in a minute. Firstly, he ruled from the ages of 8 to 18, 19, around 10 years. Not a bad reign, but a very young death compared to what he could have had. I mentioned his uncle, Ai, who was supposedly his vizier. We don't know if that was his actual title, as Egypt at the time had two viziers, one for Upper Egypt and one for Lower Egypt, or an informal title. One interesting detail is that although the pharaoh was considered a living god and a manifestation of divine power, they were usually worshipped after their death through a mortuary cult. Tutankhamun was worshipped whilst he was still alive. A big part of his reign included religious reforms. The aforementioned changes back to polytheism, but also a bolstering of the priestly class, moving the monarchical burial grounds, including his father's body, to the now-expanded Valley of the Kings, and expanding the Karnak temple complex were all major features. He also helped to rebuild the country. Its economy was in a shambles because his father had spent most of his time and a lot of the kingdom's money building an entirely new capital city and glorifying Aten. He helped to restore diplomatic relations with Egypt's neighbours, as well as lead some military campaigns. Quite an active rule, all told. But Tutankhamun did have a curse of his own. Genetic testing revealed that the mummy that's Tutankhamun's father, the one we've identified as Akhenaten, and the one that's his mother, whose identity we're not entirely sure of, were siblings. Not uncommon in ancient Egypt at all, but not great for the gene pool. Genetic testing has ruled out some of the previously more common speculations, but we do know that he had a club foot, a cleft palate, elongated front teeth, a strangely shaped head and waist, bone necrosis, and contracted malaria at one point. How he died is unknown. Assassination was a proposed theory, but ruled out after more modern analysis. The prevailing theory is that it was a compounding of his numerous health issues alongside contracting malaria, with a leg fracture from a fall possibly hastening the decline. So Tutankhamun dies and is buried. Why, then, was his tomb so well-preserved when many of the others were so badly vandalised? Well, firstly, his tomb is weirdly small, considering his status. It's thought that this might be because he died before his own tomb was finished, so it could be a smaller tomb meant for somebody else being used instead. This could also mean that the robbers didn't realise its real value. The custom was to bury the body 70 days after death, as that's A, how long Osiris was dead before he was resurrected, and B, that's roughly how long the embalming process took, so it's likely then if he died before his tomb was ready and 70 days wasn't long enough, it'd be better than nothing. Now I mentioned that the tomb had been broken into and resealed. 
Because of what was missing from the tomb and the fact that it still had most of its items and was mostly intact, it's likely these break-ins happened very soon after the burial, and so were resealed within the living memory of the king's death. After that, the entrance became covered by rubble when the new tombs and eventually workers' huts were built atop it. When Ramses I founds the 19th dynasty a short three decades after Tutankhamun dies, he works hard to erase the existence of Akhenaten and his line, so Tutankhamun fades into the mists of time. Until, that is, his cartouche was discovered. So it is speculated that the purge of Akhenaten's lineage may have helped conceal the true value of Tutankhamun's tomb, and even its location. After all, only the first chamber was broken into. More on cartouches. They're an oval with a right-angled line on one side, which, in hieroglyphic writing, indicates that the name inside the cartouche is a royal name. By translating the names in them, we can add pharaohs to our list. They can be in the form of stone tablets or just carved into a wall. Then it's a matter of finding a mummy to match the pharaoh's name. And that's how Carter had his lost pharaoh. He just needed to find him. The origins of the Tutankhamun dig are largely as I described them. Lord Carnarvon acquired the rights to dig in the Valley of the Kings. You needed to front a lot of the cost yourself, and the rights were exclusive when you had them. So he hires Howard Carter to do the actual archaeology. It's time for a second sidetrack, though, as we discuss Egyptomania. Beginning probably with Napoleon's 1789-1801 Egyptian campaign, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone that allowed for the translation of hieroglyphics, Egyptomania was a craze of around a century that resulted in the absolute fascination of the West with ancient Egypt. In the Renaissance, there was a decent boost to the concept. Hermetics tried to decipher hieroglyphics to learn ancient knowledge, and architects were incorporating sphinxes and pyramids. Spiritualism gave it a big boost as well. People's obsession with death and the life after it seemed to resonate well with death and the life after it being a massive central theme of ancient Egyptian culture. Architecture was influenced. There's a reason the Washington Monument is a massive obelisk, and London's famous Highgate Cemetery is built in an homage to the style. People hosted mummy unwrapping parties, which is exactly what it sounds like. Buy a mummy from a tomb raider, and unwrap it at a dinner party for the morbid fascination, and occasionally genuine scientific study of your friends and colleagues. In 1822, hieroglyphics were translated in France, proving them to be an actual language rather than just mythical symbols. In 1869, the Suez Canal was opened, and Egypt's strategic importance skyrocketed. More importantly, far more people travelled through it than ever before. Then came the late 18 and early 1900s. Mass production allowed objects inspired by Egypt to be mass-produced, and movies spread the tales of the deserts, especially that of the mummy, a popular early movie monster to new audiences. The discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, however, was the biggest boost of all. By the 1920s, Egyptomania was nearly done for, and a sudden massive surge made it move right into the popular consciousness, much of the nascent Art Deco style that characterised the period from 1920 to roughly 1945 was influenced by Egyptian art and architecture. Go look up ancient Egyptian art and compare it to Art Deco, and then do that with buildings, seriously. I think it's safe to say that the discovery was literally world-changing. Now back to the dig. Carnarvon had suffered internal injuries after a motoring accident some years ago, and he lived in Cairo because he hoped that the climate would better his health. It didn't, but that's where he got into archaeology and Egyptology. Archaeology had come a long way since Heinrich Schliemann sacked Troy for a second time via his brutalist archaeology. Carter was well respected for his attention to detail, both in methods of excavation and the extensive cataloguing and recording of artefacts he found. He definitely wasn't perfect, but he was a damn sight better than what had come before him, 
I'm getting Troy flashbacks just thinking about it. The going was slow and not particularly productive. By 1922, Carnarvon is given Carter one more season to dig before calling it quits. Carter decides to dig under some workers' huts that had been considered as potentially containing a site, but had never been fully excavated. And that's where it's found. The tomb of Tutankhamun. The cartouche matches the name, so it's his tomb. But interestingly, many of the artefacts aren't. Despite being the best preserved and most intact ancient Egyptian tomb of all, many of the artefacts seem to have been intended for Nefertiti at some point, including the iconic blue and gold death mask. There were 5,398 items found in the tomb, all told. A solid gold coffin, the famous face mask, thrones, bows, trumpets, a lotus chalice, food, wine, sandals, and fresh linen underwear. It took Carter 10 years to fully catalogue everything. One dagger recovered from the tomb had an iron blade made from a meteorite. Shows us some rather interesting things about the ancient Egyptian understanding of metallurgy. Another interesting discovery that lines up with the pharaoh's health problems were canes, used to assist in walking and were made for him. So that's King Tut, his reign, his life, his death, his burial, and his rediscovery. Now what about that curse? So the stories of the curse begin almost immediately after the tomb was discovered. Marie Corelli, the pseudonym of the famous author Mary McKay, wrote in the New York World two weeks before Carnarvon died that the desecration of a sealed tomb would lead to dire consequences. After Carnarvon died, the tabloids went nuts. Arthur Conan Doyle, still drinking deep from the Kool-Aid jug of spiritualism, pushed the idea that the breaking into the tomb released an elemental, an ancient spirit that was striking down those who'd wronged it. Other alleged victims of the curse included Prince Ali Kamal Fami Bey of Egypt, shot dead by his wife in 1923, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who supposedly x-rayed the mummy and died mysteriously in 1924, Sir Lee Stack, Governor-General of Sudan, assassinated in Cairo in 1924, Arthur Mace of the excavation team, died of arsenic poisoning in 1928, and Carter's secretary Richard Bethel, who was supposedly smothered in his bed in 1929, as well as his father, who committed suicide in 1930. Note that, despite being linked to the curse with greater or lesser degrees of separation, the curse's targeting of these individuals and the manners of their deaths don't seem entirely consistent. Carter himself fiercely rejected any claims of a so-called curse, and the evidence seems to agree with him. 58 or so people either opened the tomb or were present when the sarcophagus was first opened. Of those, only 8 were dead within 12 years of the tomb opening. Howard Carter died in 1939, over a decade after the fact of lymphoma. Evelyn Herbert, Carnarvon's daughter, died in 1980. For as many people as did die mysteriously, far more didn't. But that's not it for the curse, as there is a potential explanation for mysterious deaths of those who'd entered a pharaoh's tomb and did die before their times. It's all got to do with fungus. Lab studies have shown that some ancient mummies carry a mould, including Aspergillus niger and Aspergillus flavus, which can cause congestion or bleeding in the lungs. Lung-assaulting bacteria such as Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus may also grow on the tomb walls. These substances may make tombs sound dangerous, but scientists tend to agree that they're not. F. DeWolf Miller, the professor of epidemiology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, concurs with Howard Carter's original opinion. Quote, Upper Egypt in the 1920s was hardly what you'd call sanitary. The idea that an underground tomb after 3,000 years would have some kind of bizarre microorganism in it that's going to kill someone six weeks later and make it look exactly like blood poisoning is very hard to believe. End quote. In fact, Miller states that he knows of no archaeologist, or a single tourist for that matter, 
who has ever experienced any affliction caused by tomb toxins. So that is the main theory I had heard being bandied about, but it's really another Bermuda Triangle case where the story of the thing outweighs the actual history within it. So, was there a curse of the pharaohs that struck down the members of Carter's expedition? No. It's not even like there was a serious preponderance of evidence for the tomb mould theory. When I first heard it many years ago, it seemed very plausible to me. It explains why so many deaths regarded as mysterious and before their time would occur or centred on the tomb. Turns out, though, that I got Bermuda triangled. The story was just too good to be true, so I heard about it, but not the eventual corrections. But Tutankhamun and his dynasty are fascinating. The 18th dynasty of the New Kingdom is one of the most interesting of all. Hatshepsut was the first female pharaoh of Egypt. Tutmosa III was a great general who expanded the empire to its greatest heights. Akhenaten was the heretic king who sought to overturn Egyptian society from the ground up and was cast into the shadows of history. Nefertiti was another prominent female ruler. And then Tutankhamun has historical immortality. For instance, here's an interesting speculation that I once heard about Akhenaten might have been one of the first transgender people in history. Well, how do we know this? Well, it's the artwork. Akhenaten's commissioned artwork depicts themselves with female characteristics, uh, breasts, for instance, and wide hips, which according to the prevailing belief at the time, would have meant that they'd have those characteristics in the afterlife. And since the pharaoh was a male figure, this would have been a very strange choice, so they must have been intentional. How that would square away with the changing of the art style, I can't say. It was merely an interesting idea put forth by someone I knew when I was at Birmingham University. In general, though, it's a star-studded cast. Whilst I personally have a soft spot for Old Kingdom Egypt, because A, I love looking at how far back it goes, and B, that's when the pyramid building was at its peak, they're a pretty interesting bunch, too. I remember one time at my A-level philosophy class when someone asked the ethics teacher, who was an agnostic, as I believe, whether Christianity would ever stop being worshipped. And they said no. The basis for this opinion was that it had survived 2,000 years or so and probably wouldn't go away anytime soon. And I always thought, then and now, about the ancient Egyptian religion. It existed for over 3,000 years, maybe even more, but that's as far back as we can confirm it with the archaeology, and all before the life and death of Cleopatra and her son the final pharaoh. Where's the ancient Egyptian religion now? Fringe revival movements, perhaps, but outside of that, it's relegated to museums and pop culture. And boy howdy, did that pop culture take off, both then and now. Remember Egyptomania? It's influenced so much stuff. If you live in somewhere new like Milton Keynes or a planned city built after World War II, you won't see it. But if you live somewhere like London or Washington DC or New York, go look at some of the buildings built between, I don't know, 1850 and 1940, and consider the architecture. You can do it with the art too, and the fashion to some extent. Really, most aspects of culture were affected by it. But the religion itself fell by the wayside, even if the culture had a revival in the form of a strange obsession. I like it, by the way. I think it's kind of cool, the architecture and the art. I always like the angular designs of Art Deco, the bold shapes, that very modern look. I don't know if I'd say it's my favourite style, but it is still interesting. But what it also is, is enduring. That's a quality the ancient Egyptians would have loved to hear me extol. It's an enduring art style. I want to emphasize is that nothing is permanent. I'm reminded of that famous poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveller from an antique land, who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone, stand in the desert, 
Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown, and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I don't know what kind of legacy Akhenaten and Tutankhamun thought they'd leave behind. Pretty sure the former didn't intend on having his line erased from history, and the latter didn't imagine he'd be best remembered for his death, or a funeral mask that wasn't even his to begin with. But what I can say is that there have been plenty of rulers and common folk alike, from Ozymandias, the Greekified name of Ramses II, to people like William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate who inspired the film Citizen Kane and spent vast sums of money obsessively curating his image and legacy. And how does it turn out? Well, time makes fools of us all, doesn't it? No amount of embalming fluid or salt rubbing or linen bandages can keep a body pure forever. What's left after a few thousand years is a fragile husk. For some, that's enough. A legacy preserved, no matter how macabre it may be or how grim the journey. For others, it's the thought that counts. A very Egyptian way of looking at it. So long as the memory is intact, and the body is mostly fine, you're sitting pretty. Others would say it's not worth it, and prefer to fade both physically and metaphorically from history. Reminds me a little of the groups who thought the world would end in the year 2000, the Y2K people, or the millenarians who thought it would end in the year 1000, or any other group like that. To be so absolutely sure of something, so totally dedicated to one idea, that when the timer rolls over and it's January 1st, 2000, and everything's still the same it was, well, where do you go from there? The world keeps on spinning, same as it ever was. Maybe that's the true meaning of eternity. The theory that the universe will expand and contract and expand again, just like how in ancient Egyptian religious ideas the sun would sink below the sky, go into the underworld, and then be reborn again at the start of every new day. Howard Carter has a legacy. Poor Lord Carnarvon's legacy as being the guy who everyone associates with the mummy's curse. Carter, too, to a lesser extent, although he died in 1939, nearly two decades after the tomb was opened. But I hope I've emphasised how much better their archaeology was than the guys who excavated Troy and my appreciation for that. I have a serious soft spot for archaeologists in general, so to see some actually bothering to preserve the findings is refreshing. Big disclaimer, it was not perfect. Both during and after the excavation, a bunch of artefacts were broken. But compared to when I talked about Troy and how layers of the city were swept aside to make room for a probably mostly incorrect theory, it's a big step in the right direction. Egyptology is one of those fields where you're never sure how much outside influence has shaped our understanding of it. It's so hard to interpret when the civilization is so long gone. But we try, as we ever do, to understand. That's the great quest for knowledge. So with that we come to the end of this story and we close the book, for now at least, on Tutankhamun and the Mummy's Curse. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month, and follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.